Thank you, Wayne. Loved all those songs, but now my throat's a little raw. <clears throat> Good morning. Last week I talked a little about wrestling. I didn't know there were so many wrestlers, former wrestlers, not big time wrestlers, high school wrestlers, uh, college age class wrestlers. Um, yeah, it was nice to hear some of those stories. You know, the main reason I brought up wrestling last week, well, Paul brings it up for one thing, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But the thing about wrestling that I wanted us to appreciate is that in high school when I wrestled, we wrestled by weight class and basically the idea was you're wrestling somebody that's, that's an equal. And I want you to understand what Paul is saying here is that we are not wrestling equals. In fact, he says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's about as unequal as you can get. And then he goes on to enumerate the principalities and rulers and powers. And that is why Paul says in verse 10, be strong, become strong in the strength of the Lord. Become strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. That's really powerful stuff. And that really is at the heart of spiritual warfare, is that we do not fight in our own strength. We do not stand in our own strength. We're outclassed. And so... We clothe ourselves. Here, he says, become strong. And back in chapter 4, uh, verses 23 and 24, he said, put off, you know, unclothe, undress the old human. You know, in all of its weakness and flesh, he says, put on the new humanity. See, he's talking about putting on Christ, just as if you would get dressed in Christ. And that's something that we have to do on a regular basis, and we definitely have to do it when we become aware of spiritual warfare. And he wants us to know that. As I said last week, uh, when I cited Bobby Jones, competitive golf is played on a five and a half inch course between your ears. And that really is where spiritual warfare is waged. I'm not suggesting by that that Satan is not real, demonic forces are not real. I'm saying that they are engaged, everything is processed. In fact, if you think of your mind as a headquarters or command post, it is there that you have actionable intel. You have information. You have truth available to you that you then act upon in relation to the challenges of the enemy. Make sense? And so you deploy your forces. You make choices. You utter words. 
You put your hand to certain things. You can't do any better than that in the face of spiritual warfare. It is hand-to-hand combat. But I want you to know that the victory is in Christ, and you realize that and you wage the, the battle in the way that you manage your life in your mind. That's where the truth has to be calculated, and that's where the choices are made. That's where the words uh, begin, and the things that you do uh, originate. Even our timing is something that goes back to the decisions of our minds. Is it now or should I wait? That kind of thing. And sometimes that makes a big difference. I'm sure you've read in the book of Proverbs that a wise word, a choice word, apples of gold, they're so beautiful, those words that are perfectly timed. Sometimes the same word can be a source of woe and a source of great reward based on the timing of that word. Well, anyway, this is why we become strong in the strength of the Lord and our spiritual warfare is waged in His power and in His strength. And when we wage that battle in His strength, then we become strong to stand against the enemy, to stand fully equipped, and to stand alert. And I've given you the breakdown of how we will talk about Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And today I want to talk about standing against the enemy. And then I'm hopeful next Sunday, standing fully equipped, we'll move on. Today we're going to look at verses 11 and 12 in particular, and then we'll move on to verses 13 through 17, although we'll take a peek at that today, and then to stand alert, verses 18, 19, and and 20. Shelley wanted me to review the five basic truths to know about spiritual warfare from last Sunday. And she's sick today, real sick. I mean, wow. I don't even want to get near her. <laughs> when I got home yesterday, I saw she was sitting in, her, in a little chair there, you know, and the television was on. It was kind of death warmed over sort of thing. And then it hit me. Yeah, that, uh, that channel changer right there, you've been touching that. That's a source of death right there. (laughs) Where are the handy wipes? So, so far so good. Pray for Shelley. But I thought I would quickly review them. So let's uh, look at what I called the five basic truths. You know, there might have been six. (laughs) But these are the five that uh, I wanted to give you. First, Jesus is Lord, and and you can see there that I've uh, drawn our attention back to Ephesians chapter 1, and really that's, that's the master plan of God that, that 
were revealed, that's revealed to us the master plan before the foundation of the world that's going to be executed in Jesus Christ. In fact, verse 10 is, is, a, is a verse that you should just somehow underline in your heart. That is the verse that uh, in the course of everything that Paul is laying out there in verses 3 through 14, he says everything is to be summed up headed up and actualized in Jesus Christ. That's lordship. That's lordship. But of course, that also means that Satan is not Jesus equal, as, uh, as some teach falsely, that uh, Jesus and the devil are like brothers, and of course, that couldn't be more false. So, you know, when we want to know whether something's true or not, we go to the scripture. And of course, uh, Satan is our foe, our adversary. That's what the word Satan means. It comes from the Hebrew, Satan. <laughs> and it means adversary. And it is more frequently but not exclusively translated by the word devil in the New Testament, diabolos. And so um, devil means accuser, especially uh, a destructive accuser. And uh, if you read Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, you get a nice uh, encapsulation of uh, the devil, Satan, and he is called the accuser of the brethren. And I always see his activity, and I see it, by the way, this is for free, I, just, I see it in social media, the way Christians are accusing each other, constantly, tearing each other apart, tearing each other down, tearing the church down. Tearing down one another because we have the right way. We have the better way. If you're not doing it our way, then you're not doing it right, this sort of thing. And I think, what's the world seeing and hearing but the accuser of the brethren behind it all? So, Satan is not God's equal, and I drew our attention to verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2, particularly since in verses 1 through 7 of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, is that in verses 1 through 3, uh, we have uh, the reign, if you will, of death and darkness, which is the realm of Satan and his minion. And then we come to but in verse 4, which tells you that there are great limitations to his authority and power and the range and even the life of his reign. And verse 4 signals that, but God. And there you go. You see, because it goes on to speak of the realm of life and the victory over death in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, by the way, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is so important. When we speak of the new humanity, we're talking about God taking up residence in our lives through the Holy Spirit. He is the erbon, which is Greek in verse 14, 
that is a pledge of the life to come, the pledge of the promises of God, the pledge of the resurrection, the pledge of the consummation. It's a little bit of heaven, if you will. Already our experience, the age to come, is experienced in the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says, that's why he renounces the flesh. Surely in your reading of Paul's letters, you run across this flesh versus the spirit thing. Well, the flesh is me in my own strength, my, in my hu- native humanity. And in the Old Testament, the flesh is called grass because it's so weak. All flesh is like grass, Isaiah 40. And if my memory serves me, verse 8. And yet it's in that strength that we strut and swagger. It's in that strength, which is a real great weakness, that we, we want to do it on our own. We want to do it our way. And that we become defensive and prideful and all the kinds of things that lead basically to darkness and death. And, you know, just what happens when somebody is so full of himself or herself, what happens? You're just so focused in on yourself that you get smaller and smaller and smaller. But see, then the Spirit comes into our lives, and there's this new humanity that's not found in our strength. It's found in the resurrection reality of Jesus risen from the dead, conquering death, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is a reference to and verification, a ratification of the fact that he is risen, that spirit in us, the fruit of which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. These are the most beautiful, beautiful qualities And they reflect Christ because the Holy Spirit is all about developing Christ in you when you give way to his strength, his power. So Paul talks about these realities in different kinds of language in different places in his letters as he's speaking and dealing with different realities in the churches that he's writing to. And here in Ephesus, Ephesus is... Well, I'll talk a little bit more about Ephesus in a moment. But what I want you to know that Satan is not God's equal because, as I said, Paul already lays it out. His realm is death. The realm of God's activity in Jesus Christ is life. If you just figure that out, you'll realize what is not of Christ when it leads to death and darkness and disease and destruction and discouragement and depression. And just by the way, I threw in there John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and Colossians 1, 16, because in those places, among others, we're told that all things were created through Jesus Christ. And nothing that exists was created apart from Christ. In other words, everything. Well, that includes the angelic host and their hierarchy of which Satan, Lucifer, was an angelic being, is still of high caliber, 
high rank, but he rebelled against God, and he and his minions were thrown down. Number four, in Christ, weakness admits God's power. I think I changed the word this week. Well, I know I did. I can't remember what I had last week, but I wanted to use the word admit in the sense of receives, accepts, acknowledges. Because I'm not suggesting that we want to behave like we're weak. That does nothing. That doesn't accomplish anything. It's recognizing his strength that by comparison we realize, I need you, Lord. I cannot do this in my own strength. And so that's what I'm trying to get out there when I say in Christ, weakness admits God's power because it is weakness that appropriates, accepts, claims the power of God. And I mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where Paul appeals to the Lord because what he calls a thorn in the flesh, he recognizes as a, as a messenger of Satan that he thinks is going to invalidate his ministry, and he prays repeatedly, God, take this from me. I want to be effective for you. We've all prayed prayers like that. God, just step in here and fix this right away because I, I want to serve you, and I can't serve you unless you do this first. And yet, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 tells us that God spoke back to him, made it clear to him. He said, you don't need me to take that away from you. My grace is sufficient for you. And then he said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. So I hope you'll work on that because that's a great truth. And then number five, four, in Christ, we may be deceived, never possessed. The operative words here in number three and four are in Christ. I'm not talking about in your own strength, but I'm talking about in Christ. You are his possession. You have his spirit indwelling you. We were singing a song that I think was written out of Ezekiel, those dry bones that God breathes life in, into and raises up through his spirit. Well, f- ladies and gentlemen, if you're in Christ and you're here and you're the child of God, you You have his spirit resident in you. You are already in the operation of being raised up. Yes, that will be ultimately completed when we are raised from the dead, constitutionally transformed from this lowly, inferior, weak state into the very glory of Christ. Christ, Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where our heads should be. Our civics should be, where our citizenship is. That's us. Satan cannot take over you or invade you or occupy you where the Holy Spirit of God dwells. That's your status, your identity in Jesus Christ. That's important to know. 
You don't have to fear that. But you can be deceived, and we are. And then the last point, don't play the fool. And last week I looked at 1 Corinthians 8, where the Corinthians, as I explained back the, all that way back last Sunday, uh, you know, if, if, if you came to Christ, you were either a Jew or a Gentile. And if you were a Gentile, you were raised in a pagan world full of gods and deities, a hierarchy of gods and deities. And the statuary and the temples were everywhere. The sacrifices, all the festivals and activities were all predicated upon reverence to, piety toward these gods. Well, the Corinthian believers who didn't come out of Judaism were not Jews. They were all pagan. They, that was their background. That was their experience. But now they knew the truth. There's only one true God. That's what Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 8. Armed with that knowledge, they know that there are no such things as a Zeus or an Artemis or an Apollo or an Ares or an Aphrodite or an Athena or any of those deities or all the sub-deities all the way down to the little household deities and even the deities that are involved in the sewer and all the activities of life. It was, I mean, I just, it's dizzying to imagine. It's so hard for us. But now they knew the truth. But you see, all of their friends were doing it. They were kind of cut off from the life of their city, from activities at high school, the dances, all that, all those things, you know. And so they would, in, in, they would be involved and they would go to the festivities and they would sit down at the dinners where the foods were, were offered to idols. And Paul writes and he says, don't be fooled. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. In other words, they were kind of puffed up. Now, in our modern day, we're experiencing the opposite. Sure science is telling us that there is no God. It's not the method, mind you. I have nothing against science. But, but there is a presupposition. There's a, a view of the world which says there is no supernatural. There is no God. If you can't measure it, if you can't touch it, see it, taste it, hear it, feel it, it doesn't exist. And armed with that knowledge, we can stumble into the same problem, can't we? Be fooled by the non-existence of something. How much easier to get around and manipulate and influence where you're not in existence in the minds of those who are kind of propagating those ideas, you know, spreading them like manure. That's propagation in a manner of speaking. I thought you agricultural people would love that, but <laughs> I guess not. It's tough being a pastor. 
We don't want to be indifferent. Whether we believe in God or don't believe in God or anything in between, we don't want to be indifferent and we want to realize that the greatest weapon and power, the focus of our lives in all of these experiences, I don't want to make it too complicated. We're talking about details and sometimes we go, man, that's a big Bible. How will I know it all? You don't have to know it all. You need to know Jesus Christ. You need to let him be Lord of your life in the moment and you need to love. You need to be Christ-like, in other words. You need to express, love is not just for Valentine's Day. Love is the power of God that was demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Jesus' whole purpose is the expression, the redemptive power of God's love in Christ, his blood shed for us and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. God cares about you. And sometimes we think of love as weak. It's the most powerful power of all because behind it is the substance of the very heart. John himself in his first letter, chapter one, verse five says, God is love. That's pretty loose lips and flimsy use of language if there is no validity to it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter that we quote so beautifully at weddings, but we ought to read every other day of married life or life. I encourage you to read it. You think about your relationships. You think about your world. You think about this society. You think about the globe. If people would love like that, but they can't because they don't have Christ, because they don't have Christ, look, it's not a diploma on the wall. I'm going to say it again later, but I'm going to say it out of turn right now. Jesus Christ cannot be Lord of your life unless you're living in the moment, in the present. That's the only time he can be Lord of your life. You can be a part of his family, You can have a diploma on the wall, a certificate, indicating your graduation into the family of God. But there are a lot of people who do not let him be the Lord. They will not submit their thoughts. They will not submit their words. They will not submit their attitude. They will will not submit their view of anything to the Lord. And so he has no relevance in the way we address the issues of spiritual warfare and the way we deploy ourselves because of the intel. The intel is from the world and not from the word, which is revealed. So that's very important. Have you ever been conned? Sure you have. You just didn't know it. That's the perfect con, by the way. I've been conned probably more than once, but I want to share with you, I was conned in 1985. And it was not a little con. It was not a, an innocent con. Um, I was conned out of $5,000. For me, that's a lot of money in 1985. And I was uh, 35 at the time, I think. About there. 33 or something, I don't know. Don't make me do the math right now. I'm trying to think about other things. But I was in my young 30s, and I had a wife, and I had a, a brand-new child and a, and a three-year-old son. And $5,000 was a lot of money. 
I was pastoring a church in San Francisco, which we'd been there about a year at the time. And uh, the church paid me about $30,000 a year, which wasn't a whole lot of money. Uh, my wage never went up for the 10 years I was there. Here's a pro tip for you guys that are looking for wives. Uh, marry a nurse. <laughs> Just a Anyway, it was a bad economy at the time, a really bad economy. And we had sold our home in Modesto. We'd left so much behind to go there. We couldn't afford a house. The market was sick. Talk about demon-possessed. No kidding. In the 10 years we were there, we lost more people because they couldn't afford the housing. So when I make a joke, I, I'm glad you laughed, but there was a barb of real truth in that because it really did have an effect on the work of God in that area. We needed, with the money that we'd gotten out of the house we sold in Modesto, we need to make an investment because if you don't do it within a certain amount of time, there are certain penalties and taxes and things such as that. And so we were looking for some rep reputable investments, and I was listening to classical music in the office as I was working because there are no lyrics to distract you. And a commercial came on. This was KKHI in San, out of San Francisco, a very reputable, reputable classic station. Aren't classics reputable? I don't know. But anyway, so the commercial said, uh, you know, it was a, a pitch for selling gold coins. And I thought, wow, maybe we ought to look into that, you know. Gold coins, we can invest a certain amount. It'll, it'll kind of move with the economy or stay above the economy. And that way, when the kids are of college age, we'll have set that money aside for them, and it will be an investment. So I looked into it, and for three months, I mean, I really did my homework. Um, telephone interviews, background checks, all kinds of things. Um, but when I inquired, I got a call from George Papadopoulos, not the George Papadopoulos who's been recently in the news because he was a national security advisor to President Trump, not that George Papadopoulos. Try to say that three times quickly. But a George Papadopoulos that I don't know if he's even around, but at the time, uh, we went into this eventually after doing all the homework. There was a, um, uh, it was arranged uh, by courier and exchange. Anyway, in the end, uh, he got the money and I got not, nothing. And uh, we talked to the FBI, found out that George Papadopoulos was living quite well down in the Southern California area in a high-end area driving a, a white Rolls Royce. And I realized what a con man is, which stands for confidence man. Uh, the con artist trades on people's willingness to believe the lies they are told, to place their confidence in the swindler. And that really is the work that gives you a glimpse of how Satan works. I was devastated. Uh, my pride was wounded. Um, the loss of $5,000 was not easy. I felt like I'd 
wounded my family in a way that we would not be able to easily recover from. I was furious and upset for weeks. And it was after some weeks I realized that I was being conned again. And the con didn't involve any money. The con involved my life. The con involved my wife. The con involved my children, the people of the church, even God and my faith in Him. The con involved my present and my future. You see, my hatred and bitterness and shame, I probably looked pretty okay, regular on the outside, but inside I could not turn off my thoughts. about George Papadopoulos and how I wanted to find him and how I wanted to rectify this wrong. And you see, it was so consuming. It was either mad anger or pitiful victim. And there's no room for anyone else in that world. Nothing else is important. There's no room for me to recognize people around me. Their lives are not as important as what's going on in mine. There, were no, there was no energy for them. Everything was being turned inward. That's the scheme, and the scheme was predicated on the idea that my worth, my value, my significance, my purpose, my very identity had somehow been wrapped up in $5,000 of money. And I had to break out of that and realize I'm more than that, and God's bigger than that. But sometimes... You know, it's those surprises that capture us all, that begin a con in all of our lives. For me, the threshold, the amount was 5,000. You know, it wouldn't have been 100. It wouldn't have been even 500. But 5,000 for something sucked me in. What's your con? It could be something to me or to someone else here, small, but to you, it would be big. And we, be, we become the victim. All of a sudden, God's abandoned us. He didn't love us anymore. He doesn't have the power to rectify things. And we become engrossed in this. And we're completely conned and taken out of life, relationships, even faith in God. I've seen it again and again, and you have too. You've probably seen friends that you think, why did they walk away from it all? Because ultimately, he is our adversary because he doesn't want Christ victor in your life. He doesn't want Christ Lord in your life. And he doesn't want you to be Christ-like. That's the battleground. That's the point of attack. That's 
The point of the spear, as they say. What I realized was I was paying interest on $5,000 every time I continued to think about him. Every person I looked past, everything I ignored in a given day, my outlook on the present, my outlook toward the future, I was dying inside, and all of that was paying interest. It was almost like George Papadopoulos not only took me for $5,000, but he showed up every day for a payment that engulfed my entire life. And you do the same thing when you're getting conned like I was getting conned. Some of you, it might be sin in your life, something that you're ashamed of, something that you wish you hadn't done, and now you think God can't forgive you or he doesn't love you anymore, and you're stuck in the past. And life is just passing you by. It's like you're standing on the shore and the river's just flowing on by you. People, activities, things God wants to teach you, things God wants to do through you, to talk life into somebody else, to bring joy into the room of someone else. Because you are an agent of the living Lord, Jesus Christ. You are filled with his spirit. And yet you've been conned. All of a sudden, you've forgotten your identity in Jesus Christ. You're no longer his child. God's promises are no longer effective. The work of Jesus on the cross is not enough to forgive your sin and get you back on your feet and get you back in that game because you've become a victim. This stuff is really important that I'm talking to you about. This con beyond the con. There may be things that you have not let go of. Oh my goodness, that is so human. That is so old human, past human, nature's human, so to speak, and not the new human in Christ because it's that clinging us to this world as though all we have is right here with no future. Goodness sakes, folks, we're going to leave it all behind. We're going to be transformed. No vestiges. And the values of the new life have nothing to do with material things. They have everything to do with the work of the Spirit in our lives. So this is important, this con and the after con. I was going to take us in to talk about the full armor of God and go through the pieces. And you know why? Because I wanted to focus on the schemes and the forces of the devil this morning in verses 11 and 12. And I thought, what more authoritative indication of the schemes of the devil could there possibly be than the actual armor that Paul points us to? You see, if we are armed against his schemes and his forces then that should tell us about the points of attack. And what are those pieces of armor? Think not in terms of just the armor itself, but what it is to defend against. So the belt of truth defends us against deception and lies, right? And what is that truth? Well, it's the gospel, it's the word of God, it's Jesus Christ himself, the word. 
And that's why we need to arm ourselves with the realities of the gospel. And then, what's the next thing? He says, I, w- I don't want to trust my, my memory at the moment. Oh, I was right. It's the blessed breastplate of righteousness. I had a doubt, a fleeting doubt there. If in doubt, doubt. But the blessed breastplate of righteousness. Don't think just of righteousness. Nobody seems to know what righteousness is. You know, it's a, it's a big Bible word. But think of justice. And then, think about how God has changed our conception of justice. Not just equity, tit for tat, eye for eye. Not just dame justice or lady justice with her equal scales. He has dealt with us with grace. He's dealt with us with grace. And that changes the way we think of righteousness. It doesn't mean it isn't just. But sometimes we confuse the law and justice. There's a justice that goes beyond the law. And yet sometimes in our selfishness, the devil cons us as Christians who've been forgiven by the grace of God in Christ. He cons us into using the law as our great power against others, looking down on other people, becoming viciously bigoted toward other people out of the law, out of equality, out of right and rights. And then where's the gospel in that? Oh, it's all law and we talk justice, but where's, where's the grace of God? Where's that love that tempers that law? That's all gospel. So that breastplate of righteousness defends us against some uses of the law which lead us into selfishness and justify our own egotistical self-absorption instead of love and reaching out to other people and being generous and hopeful and investing in others. Oh, no, they don't deserve it. The law shows us that. You get the idea. Read it this week. Think not only about the armor itself, but think it what about how it defends you. We'll take that up again next week. Will you stand with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, what standing do we have except in faith on the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, for us? It really is stirring when we think about it, and we should. It should invade our hearts, inform our thoughts, and direct our lives. Father, we want that. We see the beauty of the world that you will create and the life that you have already begun in ours through Jesus Christ. We want that. So encourage us, draw us into faith where we trust you, live for you, and call you Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you.